Good morning, everyone. Um, Let's pray once more briefly before we dive into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you not only have acted in history in ways that are observable inside your creation, um, but so that we might not be left to our own devices or interpretations, you have given us uh, your word, which explains to us the significance of what has come through human authors, but exactly how you desired it, through your Holy Spirit, so inspiring it to where the true words of man are actually the true words of God. And so we pray that we submit ourselves to this this morning, that we might better understand you, and so doing understand ourselves, what's wrong with this world, and how in Christ it gets put back together again. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So I was thinking this week uh, about the differences between traditions and habits, Uh, And I'm not particularly a sentimental person, so this wasn't just my musings. This was me actively uh, looking at this text. And it's interesting because when we do something on our own, that's when we typically use words like habits or rituals. But traditions, when we drift into using that title, it typically involves a broader group or culture. It roots seasons and identities, not only to what is traditional, the act of the tradition itself, but actually with the group of people that with them, we celebrate that. You think of maybe footballs in the South as a picture of what it means to be Southern. And a growing tradition in my house is the daddy-daughter dance with my three daughters. We've had to recruit the help of uh, Opa as more daughters than hands exist in my house now. And as we get dolled up and dressed up and corsages and we go to dinner and we dance, I'm reminded of the beautiful joy of being their father and how much delight God takes in me, though I'm not as adorable as my daughters. My prayer is that as I care and celebrate them, they're reminded that, they ha- that all the love I have for them, all the care I have for them is only a glimpse of the care and love that their heavenly father has for them. I pray that more than that, not only seeing how it relates to God, that actually fits their eyes for their reality, that they would out of hand reject any man who comes and seeks their hand or their friendship that sees them as nothing more than an object or an instrument. It's a framing reality. You can ask the leaders about their traditional book and schlagen at their house. It's a fake holiday with real-time applications. After Black Friday and the, or on Black Friday, after the hustle and bustle of Thanksgiving, whether it's through woods of chopping or books or reading, whatever it is, it reinforces in the leader home, in this pause, that we are not the sum of what we buy. But instead, we are what we learn to enjoy from the hand of God himself. He is our joy and our peace. And whether it's how you and your friends prepare for the first hunt or your annual trip home for the holidays, traditions are powerful because it invites a diverse group of people into a shared experience which explains our reality. And it brings a unique moment, even today, as we have the tradition of coming to church together, a unique moment in the otherwise topsy-turvy world. And that's why it's so painful when traditions change. When family members move away, when seasons pass, when Mima's casserole is no longer welcome at the Thanksgiving table. The filmmaker Woody Allen once quipped, he said, traditions are the illusion of permanence. They feel permanent because they're powerful. They have a deep effect on us. But the truth is, they are all impermanent. And we know that. And regardless of how powerful they are, they move away because the real power is not the symbol, but the reality behind the symbol. 
That's why traditions don't always just go away. They often change to protect what is true. And today in Luke 22, Jesus brings a long-standing tradition to an end as he begins a new tradition for God's people. And even with this celebration, Jesus reminds us that for those who take this tradition, there is still a greater reality yet to come. There is still a better substance behind the symbol. And as we see today, what was just read for us, as the Passover is fulfilled by the Lord's Supper, so too the Lord's Supper is one day surpassed by the full reality of a feast in God's kingdom. If you've attended church before, maybe you've seen Christians participate, as we will today, in the Lord's Supper, and you wonder why we do this and why it's important. And today we see that just as the Passover celebration made sense of Israel's history, Israel's present moment in time, and Israel's future hope, so too does the Lord's Supper as it unites God's people to the story we share in Jesus Christ, which explains not only the world, but explains ourselves and where we're going and how we might be part of God's redemptive program. And this is our main point today. The Lord's Supper reminds us of past promises, present realities, and a future hope. Past promises, present realities, and a future hope. And we're going to see this in three ways today. First, we're going to examine the old sign. That's the Passover meal. Then we're going to see the new sign. That's the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to spend some time concluding by looking at the present realities that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament teach us are present when we, as the Lord's people, take the Lord's Supper. And so first we're going to examine the old sign. This is our first point this morning. This is the old sign of the Passover feast. Last week we mentioned that the institution of this feast came about in Exodus 12. And God was delivering his people out of Egypt. And so significant was this feast that God declared that this feast would now mark the beginning of the new year. It was the first month of, of the year. The whole calendar was aligned around it. Just how we kind of count down to Christmas and New Year. So the Jews understood all of their time and framework to the Passover feast. And Luke has been showing this to us. If you have your Bibles open, you can see this progression. In chapter 22, verse 1, he opens by saying, the feast of unleavened bread drew near. Then skip down to verse 7. And what does he say? Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And then notice how he opens our passage today. And when the hour came, the hour of Passover, the time of anxious longing and anticipation was finally here. And though the Passover events combined with the Feast of Unleavened Bread took up the whole of a week, there was central to it the Passover feast, and this was a memorial meal. It walked the participants through the events of that dark but majestic night when God delivered his people out of Egypt from death through the sacrifice of a substitute lamb. And a typical Passover meal includes about 15 different steps. And the goal of each of those steps is that through tasting, through touching, and through teaching, it invites people to actually participate in the Exodus story. They didn't merely hear of God's saving works, but they actually began through the wine, through the bitter herbs, through the unleavened bread. They began to experience God's grace. Just like all of our, tra our tra best traditions are, it encompassed the whole of our senses. Everything was engaged so as to see this not as merely a moment of knowledge, but actually a moment of being, of experiencing something. And notice how Jesus talks about this Passover in verse 15. He says this, Luke says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you 
before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So just a great Bible study point for all of you. When you're reading the gospel accounts of Jesus, pay close attention to Jesus' emotional life. And here we get a wonderful window into the heart of the Son of God in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And do you see what he says? He, he actually speaks of his emotional life in a doubly emphatic way. In Greek, it's actually the same word described here in verse 15 as both a descriptive word and as an action verb. Word. He, he literally is saying, I have desirously desired to eat this feast with you. We're often excited about traditions of our own. We wrap our calendars and our affections around them. But here Jesus is like the child on Christmas Eve, eager to anticipate the presence the next morning. He is so excited. And why is he excited? Well, he gives us two reasons. He's excited because of who he gets to take this meal with and when he gets to take this meal. He's taking this meal, if you look at verse 15, with his disciples, and he's taking this meal before he suffers. This will be Jesus' final Passover meal. For 30-some-odd years, he's come every year to take this feast, but this was the last one. He will not eat of it again, not until he has gathered all of his people in full in the kingdom of God. And it's here, as Jesus begins to connect his own life to the Passover feast, that he's going to begin to connect the Passover with the passion. The passion has long been uh, the word we talk of when we talk about sports, but historically speaking, it's, it's the passion of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is important because we can't pick it up in English here, but there's a profound play on words that underscores Jesus's sense of tying the passion and the Passover. He was excited, I don't know if it'll be up on the screen there, if we go to, yeah, right there. To, uh, he was excited to eat the Passover, which is the Pascha, before he suffers, which is the Pasco. And so there's this rhyme in it that is connecting the Passover with the cross, the sacrifice of the lamb with the suffering of the Son of God. The true Passover lamb, the true Pascha, was giving way to the true Pasco. The passion of Christ was fulfilling the Passover of the lamb. He was the new lamb of God. The passion and the Passover are connected, but it's not merely because Jesus read a lot, a lot of Dr. Seuss growing up. He didn't just see this rhyming word and say, oh, isn't that unique? But instead he connects it to the fulfillment of scripture. Jesus ties it to promise and fulfillment. Why will he not eat it again? Well, he says, because it's going to be fulfilled just as every other prophecy of Scripture is going to be fulfilled. Remember, it's John the Baptist in John 1.29 who introduces Jesus to his disciples saying this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was going to lead a new exodus by becoming a new lamb. The Passover was being passed over. And what God did on a small scale to bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover lamb, he, it, that was a dress rehearsal of what God is going to do on a global scale to bring all his sinners out of slavery to sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus reaffirms the passing nature of this feast when he takes what was the first of four ceremonial cups during the Passover and he says this in verse 17 and 18. Luke tells us he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So if you were a disciple here, besides Jesus' weird commentary about him dying and not taking this again, this would have been kind of the ordinary way the Passover meal would would go on. Uh, But at some point, we're going to see Jesus seems to start the feast over again. Having given thanks for an old covenant, this opening cup, he now moves on and gives thanks for a new covenant and now kind of hijacks the feast and introduces a new sign. And this is our second point this morning. This is the new sign, and that is for us the Lord's Supper. Now notice the similarities and the dissimilarities to what we just read, beginning in verse 19. Luke says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so I don't know if it's a real thing or if it's something I just picked up because I had a sister who watches like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants or holiday movies or things like that. But there's this old wives' tale, allegedly, of that if you want to start out a new identity of a marriage well, you got to have something uh, borrowed, something blue, something old, and something new. Is that a real thing? Okay, all right. There's an age divide here as to who's nodding. Um, And though you could probably do some exegetical uh, gymnastics and find something uh, uh, new or something blue and something borrowed here, um, we do in fact see this precedent of something old giving way to something new. We see that Jesus here is expressing a new center of identity where the Passover was the central feast of the people to tell them who they were, who they belonged to, and what God was doing. There is now a new center, a new feast. He's borrowing from the old. But now he's also building onto the new. There is a new source and a new sign. It's no longer the lamb and the herbs and the bread. What is it now? Now it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us, we typically, on the first Sunday of any month, we're going to do it today because of the text, you've seen us take this meal together. Throughout church history, it's gone by various names. In the book of Acts, it's called the breaking of bread, taken out of Jesus' actions here in verse 19, to break the bread. By the time Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, it was already called in the church the Lord's Supper. The early church in the decades following the conclusion of the New Testament, they called it the Eucharist, which sounds scary and creepy, but it's just the the Greek verb for giving thanks that Jesus uses in verse 9. It's a feast of giving thanks. And later on, by the Middle Ages in the church, it began to be called communion, depending upon your church tradition or background with the church. You maybe heard it called all of those things. But what it's called is less important than what it is. And here Jesus draws us to consider two aspects of it. It's material and it's memorial. In other words, it's sign and it's substance. The material is bread and wine. And over the years, there's been no small amount of argument over uh, what is in the cup. The Presbyterian brethren like to focus on the fruit of the wine. The Baptists like to just say, Jesus says it's a cup. And, uh, but for the most part, we know that it's bread and it's something red, whether it's wine, whether it's wine mixed with uh, water, or whether it's juice. But the symbolism is not so much in anything beyond what Jesus is calling us to consider here. And it's also important to see that these two elements would have been the staples of Middle Eastern life. 
Jesus didn't come with his kingdom and say, let's get your caviar and your filet mignon and do this. He didn't give his new people something inaccessible. But instead, the new identity he's giving to his people is something that is accessible to the most common person. In fact, the person who has daily needs. And what these materials stood in memorial of is anything but ordinary. Though they are to eat and drink, the actual imperative of this text lies in Jesus' command to do this in remembrance of me. In other words, as we come to the table today, it is the mind, not the mouth, that is most significant in our participation in the Lord's Supper. Jesus wants us to remember him, and he connects these implications for us. He says, the bread is representative of his body being given for you. The cup is the new covenant poured out for you in his blood. And what's interesting is that at this last supper, Jesus is so aware of what is happening that he's speaking in the present tense. He's saying this body is being broken for you. This blood is being poured out for you. The new covenant Jesus spoke of was happening live in front of the disciples as they ate this feast. And this is interesting because right now, in the Jewish calendar, as Jesus is gathered with his disciples, throughout Jerusalem, families were presenting their Passover lamb for confirmation of their purity before they were allowed to be accepted as a sacrifice. And yet at this last supper, Jesus is also being presented. Spotless, sinless, and pure for his sacrifice, which is yet to come. But there's one big difference. No one asked the lambs. The lambs were not volitional in any of this. They were sacrificed because they met the standards. But Jesus is not having his life taken from him. Jesus is not an unwilling sacrifice in the scheme of redemption. But instead, twice fold, he is speaking of his active participation for you. He is being broken for you. He is being poured out for you. Why? Because just as the Jews needed the body and blood of the lamb, we need the body and blood of Jesus. Because we need, as Jesus said, a new covenant before God, a new tradition, a new set of assurance, a new peace in belonging. And because God is the creator who existed apart from any of his creation forever and ever and ever, Anything we ever experience, we experience because God willed. He moved. He acted. And so even God's actions have a covenantal structure. It's intentional. It's not accidental. He's meaningfully entering into a relationship with those who he has created. created. And that's why the Bible shows us that the primary way God relates to his people is through covenant. It's how God, who is not human, grants access for humans who are not God to have a unique relationship with him. For a God who is cosmic and infinite to be with a creation which is finite and limited is not a natural agreement. Therefore, it had to be a covenantal agreement based off God's desire to dwell with his people. But because sin entered the picture, the remaining covenants of scripture after creation had to account for sin for not only creation to be with God, but for a sinful creation to be with God, there had to be new ground rules. 
Because our sin demanded death, God's covenant structure had to deal with the problem of death. In the Old Covenant, that's generally what we talk about when we talk about the Old Testament, broadly speaking, our death, which was required, was mediated by blood. That's seen chiefly in the Passover lamb that delivered the corporate people, but then through these ongoing weekly, monthly, and annual sacrifices in the temple. God says in Leviticus 17.11, he says why blood is required. He said this, for the life of flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Because our sin demanded death, death had to be dealt with in a covenantal structure for us to be with God. Moses calls this blood in Exodus 24 the blood of the covenant. But here's the thing. Bulls and goats did not sin. We sinned. And so already we know that the death of bulls and goats, the blood of those poured out, was not a final and full uh, sacrifice that would actually deal with our sin. It was a placeholder for a new covenant, a covenant where sin wasn't momentarily um, dealt with through a sacrifice, but finally pulled out by a true substitute of the same kind. And the Bible talks about this new covenant as a new tradition, a new badge of belonging, and a new people. We see this in Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament, looking forward to what Jesus is talking about now. This is what God says. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day. And here's, here's the Passover significance. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Where the sacrifices dealt with sin momentarily, a new covenant was coming to deal with their sins eternally. And it's through this covenant, God says in Zechariah 9.11, he says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from a waterless pit. If you were to go and to attend uh, a Jewish Passover feast today, you would find a cup that sits in the middle of the table that no one touches. That cup is reserved for God's prophet Elijah, who they think is still coming. Moreover, a lot of them refuse to have any type of lamb-based meat on the table. Instead, they have an egg, and it's meant to show that they're still waiting on the Passover lamb. Their feast slides to a stop in all history because their lamb has not yet come. But when Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood, he is saying to you, your lamb has come. Your way back into God's grace. Your sins will be given the full receipt, paid in full. 
there is no more waiting. There is nothing else yet to come to bring you relief from your sins and restore you to God. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And now knowing this, we know why Jesus is using that present term because in his disciples taking this, if this symbol was to have any substance, it's this symbol, not the hands of sinful men that put him on the cross. This is happening live. He knows the cost of everything he's about to do. And yet despite that, we return in staggering wonder to his affections. Despite what the covenant will cost, despite the piercing of his body and the spilling of blood, he was desirously desiring to eat this feast with his people. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you have kids or nieces or nephews or Church, mem- been at church members' homes and kids make a mess. But I often have, in my sinful moments as a father, I step in to clean up my kids' mess, and I do so wanting them to know the cost it is to me. I want them to see my sort of displeasure in it. Like, yeah, hey, look, your dad is on the bottom of the table scraping off oatmeal, and he's not happy about it. But do you realize that Jesus is desirously desiring not to scrape gum off of his leather seats, but to die for those who earned their own death, to be their substitute. Why is Jesus desiring it? Because the cross was Jesus's joy. B.B. Warfield says it best, he says this, he says, joy he had, but it was not the shallow joy of mere pagan delight in living, nor the delusive joy of a hope destined to failure, but the deep exultation of a conqueror setting captives free. This joy underlay all his sufferings and it shed its light along the whole thorn beset path, which was trodden by his torn feet. If our Lord was the man of sorrows, he was more profoundly still the man of joy. Jesus desires to eat this feast with his people because Jesus desires to save the broken, to save the lost, and to give them new certainty, a covenant and a certain hope. Now, as beautiful and as poignant as this moment was with Jesus and his disciples, like many of our family gatherings, it got awkward really quick. You'll notice where Jesus goes immediately after he talks about this covenant in verse 21. He says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is, on, is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And so here we begin to examine the continued realities that are behind the supper. While the events of the Passion and the Passover are in our rearview mirror, there still are, even in this text today, in Luke 22, present realities that needed to be worked out. Something greater than the Passover was there, but even at the Lord's table, there was sin, there was bitterness, there was hatred, there was wickedness, there was a betrayer. And this is our third point this morning. This is where we look at the present realities of the Lord's table. You see, for the disciples, life at Jesus' table was still contested. There are three types of people at this table. There is first, there is a sinner 
who is dishonest about his faith. That's Judas. He has come in false pretense and he sits at that table knowing he has already betrayed Jesus over to the authorities. But second, you'll notice that there are faithful Christians who are honest about their potential sin. The disciples are there and they're not saying they're sinless. In fact, they're discussing which of them it could be. They're acknowledging the reality that they have sin inside them and yet they are at that table with full faith in Jesus. And then lastly, there's the one true lamb who sees everyone's heart perfectly and by means of his sacrifice, he will sort out everything in the end. In him, the conflicting realities find peace. In him, the concealed realities are revealed. And in him, our covenant is given. And so to today, that when we take the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that this world is filled with broken realities. It's, broken with, it's filled with realities we do not know, but it reminds us of the place in which God has put certainty. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined of him. The only thing that makes sense of our lives is God's plan in Jesus Christ. That is determined. That is certain. And that's what any good tradition does. It orients us and it brings us peace in a world that often feels chaotic. It reminds us who we are and whose we are. This is the role of a covenant. It gives us assurance when we go and we say, I have this receipt, therefore I get this product. This is the reward of the covenant. Many of us view life, um, and maybe you're saying it right now as it's negative 78 degrees outside. You say, if I could just make it to my vacation, if I could just make it to 50 degree weather, then I'll be good. I'll stabilize. And in this way, the Lord's Supper is almost like a vacation that we put our hope on to bring us peace and to bring us organization. But here's the difference. It is not a vacation away from our reality. It's a vacation into the deeper aspects of our reality. It's reminding us behind what seems superficial, what is truly going on. The certainty behind all of life's uncertainties. And so what are these certainties that as we take the Lord's Supper, we get to remind ourselves of? I want to touch on five basic assumptions here to bear in mind as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. And first, taking the Lord's Supper reminds us of one sacrifice. One sacrifice. When we take the bread and the cup, we remember Jesus' wonderful affirmation, it is finished. And this is one way where Protestant churches break from Catholic churches. If you were raised in the Catholic tradition, you might have noticed the way in which they talk about the Lord's Supper and the cup and the body of Christ. And part of that is because the Catholic Church refuses to believe that Christ's sacrifice alone is sufficient to justify us and to sanctify us. They say that it helps, but you are going to become sinful over the course of the week. And so you need to go back to the cup and back to the bread, and you need to eat that so that you get more grace. It's kind of like when you play video games, kids, and you like eat the health things. It's like that's what the Lord's Supper becomes to them. And because of that, they actually believe that the, the elements actually become the body and blood of Christ in your mouth. It's not a metaphor. It does that. And they're doing that because they're saying Christ lives as a perpetual mass, as a perpetual sacrifice. Weekly, whenever the mass is given, Christ is being sacrificed again for his church to make up for their needs. But church, that is so unbiblical. That spits in the face of the entire New Testament and the words of Jesus himself. 
When we take the Lord's Supper, we do not think that it magically or mystically changes us. Why? Because Christ already has. Christ has made us new, finally and fully. As the author of Hebrews says, he says this in Hebrews 10.10, and by that will, and so again, we're connected to this will, this covenant of God. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Are you a weary believer who wrestles with assurance and doubt? Here is your covenant once for all. Christ has done it. He is sufficient. Come and take this. Take the bread and take this cup. Take full assurance. Jesus paid it all. And there's nothing else that can atone for our sins. But second, it reminds us of one faith. One faith. How do we gain access to the sacrificial power of Jesus? Not by eating, but by believing. Paul calls the Lord's Supper in the book of 1 Corinthians participation in Christ. And there's only one way we participate with Christ, and that is by faith. This is a meal for believers. If you're not a believer in here, you don't need a snack. You need a savior. <laughs> and so we are saved not by what our mouth consumes, but by what our mouth confesses. Taking this means nothing unless you have taken Christ. And you take Christ by faith. So if you are a non-believer in here today and we get to this point, do not take this, but take Christ. Confess your sins. Come to him. Trust in his sacrifices and not your own merit. Writing in the early 100s BC, Justin Martyr gives us a glimpse into how this was already and always the way the church understood the Lord's Supper. He said this, he said, no one is allowed to partake, that's of the Lord's Supper, but the man who believes that the things we teach are true, who is baptized and who is living as Christ has enjoined him, is living as Christ has uh, empowered him and changed him. And so in this, we see another reality of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us of one life, of one life. Uh, Justin Martyr said that we live as Christ is enjoining us and empowering us to do, and that's because it is, after all, a covenant meal. Covenants have multiple sides, but the beauty of the gospel is what Christ demands from us, he also gives to us. You see, in the Old Testament, the Passover meal, he gave them the Passover lamb, he instituted this meal, and then what did he expect? Them to just sit in Egypt? <laughs> no, he delivered them so that they could do what? So they could follow the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night and in so doing arrive at the promised land. He gave them a covenant that they might walk with him. And why has Christ shed his blood for us? That we too might follow Jesus in all of life until we reach the promised land of glory. When we take this Lord's Supper, we are realizing that we no longer live for any other destination or desire but that which God has given us in the gospel. When we eat it, we're reminded that the gospel gives us spiritual calories to live as Christians. Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss reformer, writing largely against how the Catholics viewed uh, the Lord's Supper, he said this, he says, the Lord's Supper is a demonstration of allegiance by which someone proves to the church that either he intends to be or already is a soldier of Christ and which informs the whole church rather than himself of his faith. The Lord's Supper gives us the marching orders we follow, not by our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. It reminds us of the new life we have in Jesus Christ, not only as individuals, but as the whole church. This is the fourth reality. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we are one body. 
You'll notice all the commands Jesus gives the disciples in this text are corporate commands. They're doing this among them and with everyone. I remember when Sarah and I got married, many of you were there. Uh, Well, that's maybe not true. Some of you were there. Our church has turned over a lot in the last 12 years. Um, uh, We took the Lord's Supper at the wedding. And we thought it would be a great idea. It's this wonderful thing. It's a Christian thing. But the more I studied scripture and then went to seminary and then looked back at the Bible after all this, I realized that communion is not a private act. It's a church act. The Lord's Supper is not a me and Jesus thing. It's a we and Jesus thing. You'll notice this when you look at not only what's happening here in Luke 22, but how Paul talks about the Lord's Supper in the book of 1 Corinthians. He doesn't assume, or he assumes Uh, and doesn't give instructions as to how you take it at your bar mitzvah or your bachelor party or your wedding or a weekend retreat. He gives instructions how to take it, he says, when the church gathers. Why? Why so important that the Lord's Supper be taken as a corporate meal in the context of a local gathering? Well, because of what the symbol or what the sign symbolizes. What's the substance? Well, he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There are two signs that the Lord gives the church as an ongoing act. The first is the one-time act of baptism, and the second is the ongoing act of the Lord's Supper. And it's been said of baptism that it is the one being joined to the many, and of the Lord's Supper, it's where the many are made one. And if you look at the language Jesus is using here in Luke 22, He's giving this meal to his disciples. Why? Because he's not going to take it again. But what is he calling them to do? You keep taking it. You keep doing this. This is a feast that we take because Christ is not here. This is where we as the church remind ourselves that in Christ we have sufficient energy, power, and assurance to walk through all of life's unknowns. As God's church, he has given us what we need to be sustained by his body and by his blood. And this is why we typically say, you've heard us say when we introduce the Lord's Supper, that this is for those who have been baptized. And that's simply because believing and baptizing is tied together in the book of Acts. Those who take the breaking of bread are those who had already been baptized in the church. Throughout church history, uh, it wasn't up until the last hundred years or so that baptism was always the entry point into how one became a member of the church and joined the church. And it was only, regardless of your church background, it was only those who had been baptized who took the Lord's Supper because to take the Lord in one part but not the other is to communicate a total lack of identity. And so when we eat this, we are reminded of how the gospel brings us together, not only to Christ with our sins being atoned, but to one another as a community being redeemed. And actually, in church history, uh, in the early stages after the New Testament, the church had uh, a name they gave to Sundays when they took the Lord's Supper, and they were called love feasts. Because so central to their experience was God's love for sinners that he died for them, but so profound was that love that it brought everybody into the midst of it who had faith, and we rejoiced not only at our love for God, but our love for one another. As you read 1 Corinthians, Paul is upset with the church, not only because they forgot what the Lord's Supper symbolized in Christ, but they forgot who they were to eat the Lord's Supper with, with one another. When they came and ate, they were selfish, they were self-centered, they were arrogant and they were prideful, and they didn't eat it together as a body. And why is this so important? 
well, again, what's the, the, what does the sign symbolize? Augustine encourages us with this. He says, remember that the bread is not made from one grain, but from many. So too with the wine. Brothers and sisters, just remind yourselves what wine is made from. Many grapes hang in the bunch, but the juice of the grapes is poured together into one vessel. That too is how the Lord signified us, how he wished us to belong to him, and how he consecrated the sacrament of our peace and unity on his table. You see, this, when we take it together as the Lord's church, we're reminding ourselves that we are one in Christ Jesus, that he has wed us not only to Christ the head, but to the church who is his body. And this is where we're reminded that even life in this church is not all roses. Judas was at this table. Though this is for those who publicly identify with Christ, there are those in this room who seek to belong by anything other than believing and are not Christian, do not want to submit to the Lord. In this room are also those who do submit to the Lord, but who are wrestling with the brokenness of this world. I know in this room today, there are those who are here grieving the loss of a loved one. There are those wrestling with years of addiction, pornography, and alcohol. There are those waiting for the return of diagnostic results on return of cancer, chronic diseases. There are those who feel completely overwhelmed at parenting, wrestling with doubt. But this table is for those who come in faith. Because of a snowstorm in Buffalo, today's Buffalo-Pittsburgh game has been moved. And Buffalo fans like to do one thing, uh, that for some reason, they get up on top of trucks or cars and they jump onto tables and break them as a sign of celebration. I don't know why. Uh, big Aslan fans. And, uh, and so what happened when they postponed this game Thank you. Yeah, he gets it. Let the reader understand. Um, when, when they found out this game was postponed because of a snowstorm, there were many like Buffalo faithful machismo people who went out and got on top of their, you know, jacked up Ford F-150s and jumped on the table and broke it. The most faithful fool can jump all he want on the Lord's table and it will not break. It was built to take the sin the fears and the brokenness of those who come in faith. And this table will not break because this table is not the final table. And this is where we're reminded of our last reality. That is one hope. One hope. There is another table yet to come. And remember, Jesus said he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he returns again. Paul encourages the Corinthian church by saying this in Corinthians 11. He says, for as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is coming back. And what's interesting is that Jesus does return in resurrected glory in the New Testament. He eats, we'll see actually later on in the book of Luke, he breaks bread with those on the road to Emmaus. In the book of John, he eats fish with his disciples, but never does he drink wine. Be a Baptist. I was just kidding. Um, Wine was the drink of celebration. And Jesus, though he is alive, is refraining 
from the final celebration because we are not finally there. He desirously desires for you to come to this table so that one day he pops the cork at the next. On that table, there will be those who have cried, but now those who never will. There'll be those who have sinned, but now those who never will. Those who have died, but now those who will never die. For Christ, our lamb, has brought us full. The covenant promised is the covenant lived. One day the table is fixed. One day even this tradition will be swallowed up. And while we take this, it feels like it might go on forever and ever and ever and ever. But remember, it will not. God has given his word. Christ is coming back. And one day we see this feast in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. As John says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pails of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, as we take this meal together, let us be reminded that we are invited not because of what we take with our body or with our mouth, but what we take by faith in Jesus Christ for us. We have hope that orients our past, our present, and our future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we participate in this meal together, that we do this in remembrance of you. Lord, we pray that you help us to wrestle well if we are sinners who are also believers. Remind us that your body is sufficient and your blood poured out for us is powerful enough to make a way forward through faith and repentance that we will one day be dressed in fine linens, pure, because Christ has died to purify his church. For those who are in here, Lord, who have perhaps insincere hearts, that you would remind them that even for them, there is hope should they turn and repent. And Lord, as those who watch from the outside, I pray that what they see is not only the beauty of Jesus who died for his church, but the love the church has for one another and for their savior. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So I don't